So I know um, it's Sunday. On Friday, we usually take our thinker's cap off after we leave work and we set it on like the door hanger and we don't put it back on until we go back into the workplace. But I'm going to ask you to get that bad boy out, dust it off a little bit more before um, Monday rolls around and think with me a little bit um, as we're diving into tonight. So imagine, all right, you got your thinker's cap on, imagine that you've decided that you want to write a biography, all right, you want to write a biography. Some of you are like, man, and there's no way I would ever want to write anything in that capacity. But imagine you do, all right? Just go with me with this, all right? You, you want to write a biography, and you want to write it on someone that you love dearly. Maybe they, they're still alive, maybe they've passed, but you, these people, this person has been such an influence on your life and you want other people to know their story, you want other people to know the heart and essence of this person, and so you've decided, I'm gonna write a biography on this person. And so as you sit down and you start thinking through, and you're like making outlines for how you're gonna go through and write this book, this biography on this person that's so meaningful to you, you're sitting down as you're doing the outline, you're like, man, there's so much There's so much that I want to cover about this person's life, this person's story, about who they are, how they've impacted me. I so desperately want people to know who this person is. And as you're sitting down, you're thinking through the outline, you're like, man, I can't can't go with everything. It'd be far too much. There's no way that my editor would be okay with this. They're going to tell me to cut down the word count, the page count. As I think through this, man, there's so many stories that I like, how do I fit all this together? How How do I think through this? And so as you sit down and you begin thinking through the process of piecing together this biography, you get selective. You think about this person's life. You think about moments in their story and you pick out those pieces of their story because they're strategic about knowing the heart and essence of the person that you're wanting to write this biography about. And so you sit down and you make the outline, you select these stories carefully because you want to introduce this person's life, this person's essence to all the readers who may read about this person that means so desperately much to you. Well, that's what's happening in the Gospel of Mark, as well as the other Gospel accounts that we get about the life of Jesus. In the Apostle John's Gospel, he writes this, there are also many other things that Jesus did. I mean, this is towards the end of his Gospel. It's in the 21st chapter of the Gospel. He says, there are so many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written, thinking and speaking about Jesus. And so the authors, they've uniquely selected stories and teachings because they want to introduce us to this Jesus who literally changed the world, changed their lives, and they want us to know the life and the very essence of who Jesus is. And so in the accounts we've looked at so far, we've learned a couple of things, all right? So we've looked through two stories up to this point. We're going to look at a third story tonight. The first story, we looked at Jesus' baptism when we learned that Jesus is the Son of God. This unique experience for people that came to be baptized by John, a baptism of repentance. And what happens there is the heavens are torn apart by the heavenly father. He speaks a word over Jesus and we see that he declares that Jesus is the son in whom he is proud and who is deeply loved. This Nothing has ever happened like this before in the the whole span of human history and we see God ripping open 
the heavens, expressing that there's this intimacy between Jesus and his heavenly father that has not yet been experienced. In the second story, last week we looked at the healing of the paralytic. Jesus is in a home. It's so crowded by people that have come to follow Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, to sit under the preaching of Jesus, that the house is packed. The entryway is so packed, people can't get in. There's four men that are carrying a friend who's paralyzed, maybe the whole body, maybe from the waist down. We're not sure, but they bring this guy in on his mat. They can't get through the door, so they rip open a hole in the roof. They drop this man down before Jesus, and Jesus declares something that no person is ever just supposed to say when it comes to God's people, when he says, your sins are forgiven. That's only an act of authority that God himself can proclaim And Jesus in that moment is saying, I'm him. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the savior of the world. I am the God man, Jesus, who has come to deal with your sins. And in saying it, he's basically promising that he's gonna be the one that goes and dies in your place. So one, he's the son of God. Second, he's the one who has authority to forgive sins because he's God in the flesh. And then this evening, we learn another essential aspect about Jesus' life and ministry, and it's who he came to the earth for. That's what we find in verses 13 through 17, the passage that we just read. So the story we're looking at tonight breaks down into three different parts, all right? And so here's how I've titled them. The first one is you have a call. The second one is you have a question. And the third is that you see a grace. So a call, a question, and a grace. We'll work through these, each each part of these sequentially. And so in doing so, we'll gain a clear picture of who Jesus came to earth for. Who was his ministry geared towards? Who, Who did he come? Who did he have in his mind and his heart whenever he came and lived this life perfectly and dying on the cross for those people? So to begin, let's look at the first part. Our story begins with a call. We see this in verses 13 through 14. I'll reread it so we can have it refreshed in our minds. So here's what it says. Jesus went out again beside the sea and the whole crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them and then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. So you read this and it's like, all right, I don't like, not a lot seems to be going on here, but if we really unpack it, I think we'll find that there's more to this passage than what maybe is at the first blink of our eye. So this is an account that immediately follows last week's story with a paralytic. Jesus has left the home and as he leaves the home and he goes by the sea, the crowds continue to follow him. And so as he's going along the sea, Jesus continues teaching the word of God to these people that are following him. And as he's going along, he extends a call for a man to follow him. There are a couple of things that stand out about this man. Um, His name is Levi, son of Alphaeus. And here's a couple of things that really I captured in my eye as I'm reading through this passage, right? So the first one is this. He's not who you would expect Jesus to invite to follow him. He's not one of the people that if you had a list of sequential order of people in the world that Jesus would invite to come and follow him, this would not be one of the top men. There aren't many details that we have about Levi other than who his father was, but the one we do get is pretty significant. And it's that he's a tax collector. So in this point in time, people despise tax collectors in Jesus' time. So 
We probably wouldn't think very highly of somebody that would be in this line of work anyway, but at this point in time, they were certainly discredited. So essentially, a tax collector was a dishonest IRS agent. Anybody want to do that profession? No, absolutely not. Nobody wants to sign up for that. So what they would do is they would overcharge their own people so they could get rich off of their own people. So what they, what they did essentially is they had booze with ledgers. They were at these street corners where people they knew were going to be passing by. And so they had names and they had ledgers and they had people that had, were listed down in these. They worked for Rome who were the oppressors of God's people. And they were given charge they were given char- they, were, they were given power, sorry, to charge people whatever they wanted by the Roman authority as long as Rome got their cut. So they, they extorted. They were extortioners. They were charging more than what they were actually supposed to do. Getting rich is a it's scheme. It's, it was the original pyramid scheme where you get rich quick off of other people. So you saw this. The tax collectors, in light of all this, they were viewed as traitors and abusers of their own people. So much so that people associated tax collectors with thieves and murderers. That's how despised and looked down upon in the culture they were. Listen to this, all right? So they were expelled from places of worship because they were, so deste- they were so detested by their own people. They couldn't even gather with God's people because of the work and the line of work that they are in. Just the touch of a, a tax collector in a person's home wouldn't make it unclean. And this was a really big deal to Jewish people. I mean, they had rituals, they had rules about the food that they ate, about different physical things that were going on within their own body. Tax collectors just being themselves by putting a hand on your home or on a person in your home made the whole house unclean. A Jewish person literally could lie to a tax collector with impunity. So if you committed a sin at this point in time, you had to go to the temple, you had to bring a sacrifice to the temple in order for a reckoning to be made for your sin, this correction that was needed between your relationship and God, you'd bring a sacrifice you could, you could get away with lying to a tax collector and there was no fee. There's nothing that was needed on your behalf to make up for this sin that according to the, the, the religious powers of that time, nothing was needed. You, you could do it with impunity. That's how detested tax collectors were at this point in time. So one of the last people that you would expect is one of the first invitations that Jesus hands out in coming to follow him. And it's not just how unlikely of a follower that, uh, that Levi is that sticks out to us, but it's also how willing he was to give up everything to follow Jesus. It's a complete sacrifice that Levi gives in order to take up this following of Jesus. Levi had already burned his own people. So like imagine like you're in his spot, all right? So to take up this invitation from Jesus to follow him, you have to think about just how big of a sacrifice this was for him. He's already spurned his own people. He's already turned his back on his own people because he's gone to the oppressor to work for the oppressor and now he's taking advantage of his own people. So his own people don't want him. And if he follows this invitation to leave everything to follow Jesus, he's turning his back on the only profession 
that he could possibly have in this whole entire world. Now, if you were another person that got an invitation from Jesus, this isn't the first invitation that we see. We've already seen that he's invited Peter and his brother Andrew. We've also seen John and James, that they received invitations. But what did they do? They're fishermen. If things don't work out with Jesus for those four, they can just go back to their family profession. If you're a farmer, you can go back to the family profession if things don't work out with Jesus, but not so with Levi. He's already turned his back on his own people. Now he's turning his back on Rome. You don't come back to the booth if you turn your back on the booth. So look, Levi gets this invitation from Jesus as he's walking along the sea, as these crowds are following him. Jesus offers the invitation Levi, without a hesitation, lays it all down and follows Jesus. Incredible sacrifice that takes place in this man's life. He looks at Jesus. He sees this invitation that Jesus gives to him and he says, this offer is too good to pass up. Because you have to think about what Levi is experiencing in his life. It's almost as if the weight of the decisions of Levi's life have weighed far too heavy on his shoulders. He looks at the decision that he made, hey, I'm gonna turn my back on my own people, I'm gonna go work for Rome, and I'm gonna be the one that gets rich off of my own people. He looks at it and is like, oh my gosh, what did I, what did I decide to do? How, how could I choose to do this to my own people? The, this whole response, this whole decision that I've done, not only has it affected like my family members and everybody that was close to me, I don't know, all the friends that I grew up with are completely gone because of this decision that I've made, but now I'm unclean. I can't even go to the temple to worship this God of my own people. What did I get myself into? And then he sees Jesus, who he's seen has healed people, who he's seen has spoken with authority, He's seen that he extends forgiveness to some of the people that would be least expected. We saw this last week with the healing of the paralytic. And so Jesus is coming along and he's walking along the sea and he sees the crowds and Jesus calls him by name. He says, Levi, come follow me. Levi has to be thinking, this is my shot. This is my one chance. This is the guy who says he has the authority to forgive. And he's inviting me. And so he leaves the tax booth. He leaves everything at the moment that Jesus calls him. And he follows him because it's too good of an invitation to leave behind. To Mark's initial readers, this introduction of this story would grab their attention. If you're if you're in the point in time when Mark lived and he wrote this gospel as he spelled out the very beginning of this story, people that were hearing it would be like, wait, Jesus invited who? Jesus, what? Levi, tax collector? The, the fifth invitation to come and follow, to a tax collector? Uh, and wait, the tax collector actually did it? Like he, he left the booth behind and he did it how quickly? Oh, at the very moment that Jesus issued, the, he didn't even go home and think about it. 
This would have stood out to the people that were reading this gospel account, this story. People would have been so gripped by the news of what's going on here. Look, we can read over this and be like, oh, great. Jesus invited somebody to come follow him. They took up the invitation. No, it's so much more. There's so much more. It's the last person that you would expect Jesus to invite to come and follow him. And then the immediacy and the sacrifice by Levi to follow Jesus, it's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Jesus' call to Levi should grab our attention too. Because as we're wrestling with who did Jesus come for, we get the first initial stages of the answer here. Wait, someone like a Levi could be invited into the family of God? It should spark our interest. It should beg the question inside of us, is this for real? Is this true? Is this really like the, the people that are on the margins of society? Like they can be included in the family of God too? Like, is this real? Those are the things that should be going on inside of us. It would have been the things that were going on inside of Mark's readers when he first brought this account. So the story progresses and the intrigue only builds as we see this story go along. Because we have the call. Jesus invites Matthew, Matthew or Levi to come and follow him. And then we see a question in the next section. So read, look with me at verses 15 through 16. It says this, while he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there are many who were following him. And when the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So upon following Jesus, Levi throws this massive party with his friends. Now, you have to realize he didn't have many friends. He's probably just his other tax collector friends, small select group of people that would even associate themselves with Levi at this point in time, and Jesus joins them. And this is where the story starts to get really, really interesting. So Mark introduces new characters to the scene here. He says they're scribes who are also called Pharisees here, and they see Jesus at Levi's house enjoying the community of Levi, meaning his friends that would also be in the same line of work as him, and Jesus is with them and enjoying their presence. And they pose a question, why does Jesus, this is to his disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's what's fascinating about this scene. So these scribes and these Pharisees, these are the people that you would expect to follow, that Jesus would invite to follow him. We give them a really bad rap because of some things that Jesus said about them, but if you would go back at this point in time, these are the people that would stand out. These were the godly people in God's people at that point in time. These are the people that you would look, they have their lives together. They're the ones that set the standard. Those are the type of people, this is what holiness looks like. That's what a lot of people at this point in time would think of this godly bunch called the Pharisees. They had a high respect for God's word. They had a high respect for God's commands. They, had, they were tremendous rule followers when it came to following the law, came according to what the book of Moses said, like all the way from um, Genesis through Leviticus. All these things, you would see these guys living up to the marks that God had called them. In fact, they were so rigorous in their rule keeping that they added extra laws onto what God had already put on his people because they wanted to make sure they didn't even put themselves in a situation where they could sin against God. 
to the common person, the Pharisees would have been viewed as the ideal recruits for Jesus if he was coming to start a ministry at this point in time, which is why the second scene is so astonishing because what we find is the scribes or the Pharisees are on the outside looking in. They're not the ones that are in the home with Jesus, kicking it, hanging out with the group, spending multiple hours of time with Jesus. That's not what's going on here. The Pharisees, the scribes, are the ones outside of the home, gazing and peering in. Mark says that Jesus is reclining at Levi's table. We read, we read that and it's like, oh, he probably just found a like, comfy seat to sit in. Well, there's a lot, that's more, a lot more that's going on whenever this word recline is used. It's not that he just decided, I'm gonna just show up for a little bit at this, this massive party that Levi's throwing at his home. No, reclining was this customary language for a feast or a festival, which at this point in time would span for days, sometimes even weeks. So Jesus is at the house of Levi reclining at the table, which means this could be, go, this could be a party that spans for a really long time. Jesus could be at this party a couple of days in by the time that the Pharisees and the scribes realize what's going on. And in light of what they've learned about the tax collectors, like what we've already seen, unpack, what we've unpacked about these tax collectors and how they are viewed by people, it's absolutely startling that Jesus would spend so much time with this group. These were the detestable people that you didn't go spend time with them. And Jesus is associating himself with traitors and with thieves and the worst of the worst in that present day society. While the pious, the people that had lived according to what God had laid out for his people, they're left outside looking in. So look, Jesus at this point in time, he's bucking all the social norms. He's saying by me coming and spending time with them, these rituals that we put on people, these rituals that we put on sinners like tax collectors where they basically, by the touch of a hand, they make the whole house unholy, Jesus says, I'm gonna go spend time with those people and not just stopping by, I'm gonna actually be associated with them because I hang out with them over days and maybe even weeks at a time. And not only that, like this is one of my closest followers. One of the first people that I invite into my core group of friends as I go and minister to all of God's people across his, his land and his property. And it begs the question, and I mean, if you're a Mark's reader at this point, you're like, what is going on? Jesus has issued an invitation to a tax collector and then the Pharisees and the scribes are outside looking in. These are the prize, like, what is going on? Has Jesus lost his mind? This is why the very next chapter you see Jesus' family coming and trying to get him away from the crowd so they can question him about what's going on. And when this happens, Jesus looks around the room and he says, who are my mother and who are my brother and who are my sister? And he looks around the room and he sees the, the women that are around him and he sees the young men and he sees the young women. He says, that's my mother. And that's my brother and that's my sister. He says, no, 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 no. Well, my family even has this backed up. They, they don't even understand what's going on here. He's saying, I'm coming and they, I've come for a people that is breaking anybody's conceptions about who this Messiah, the coming Savior was gonna be. He's saying, I, I'm, I, I'm setting a new standard. 
The thing that people thought and expected is not the very heart of God. And Jesus is coming and saying, I'm setting a new standard. I'm setting a new way. But at this point in time, Mark's readers would be like, oh my, it seems like he's got this all wrong. He's got this all backwards. Jesus needs to figure it out. He needs to get his act straight. And if we're following this story correctly, we're supposed to be confused too. Like at this point in time, we should be like, I don't know where Jesus is going with this. I have no idea who Jesus came for. That's where we're supposed to be at this point in time. Who did Jesus come for? I'm so confused. Thankfully, Jesus answers that question for us in the third and final section. So verse 17, read this with me again. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is abundantly clear about who he has come to earth for. Look, Jesus has come with a grace for those with a sin sickness. That's what he's saying here. Now, you may, like, if we step back, we even read a passage, like, all have sinned. Everyone. There's not one person that has fully kept the law of God to where they can stand before God and say, like, you have to accept me because I've followed everything. I mean, we've talked about this in numerous of our services. So, like, Romans 3.10, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if you read this, it's like, well, hold on. So, like, wouldn't that be the Pharisees and the scribes? Like, yes. Look, yes. Absolutely. Like, we, we see that it's not just people that are tax collectors. You see Nicodemus is like, he's a Pharisee. He's in John um, 3. This is the one that came in the, the night that came, John 3, 16, all the words that we all know. For, he, God has come for us. He came to die for the world. He came to die for our sins. Nicodemus, you think that he's a follower by what we see later in the gospel accounts. So yes, there is, this is something that Jesus is saying is available to all. But here's the difference between the tax collectors and the Pharisees. The tax collectors, look, they know they have a sin sickness. It's so, it's so blatantly in front of them that their sin seems so large. It seems like there's such a magnitude when it comes to their sins that there's no way that they can get around it. It's something that they feel. It's something they experience. It's something they deal with on a day-to-day basis by the way that people treat them, by the way they feel internally, by the way that others, the loved ones that they once had, have turned their back because they've turned their back on them. It's always before them. They feel it deeply, but the Pharisees, not so much. Not so much. They're the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. If you remember the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son, he basically wishes that his father was dead. He wants his inheritance early. He goes off and he just spins it wildly. He ends up eating from pig's troughs and he thinks, even my father's servants have it better than me. So he builds up this whole Like this whole apology to his dad, he runs back. The father sees the son off at a distance, picks up his his skirt or his dress at that point in time. He goes and embraces his son, puts a signet ring on his on his ring finger, he goes and throws a massive party. The, the older son comes in and he sees everything that's happened, and he won't even go in. And so the father has to go out to him 
And here's what the other brother had to say. He said, I slaved for you. I've worked rigorously for you. I've never disobeyed anything that you've ever done. How could you do this to me? Because they don't see their sin sickness. That even their obedience is marred with the depths of their own pride. The tax collectors, it's, it's always before them. The Pharisees think they have it together, though. They don't see their sin sickness. And so we learn something that's so essential about Jesus and the gospel and God's grace here. So just as a physician is always looking towards disease and as charities are always looking towards those that are dealing with affliction and distress, God's grace is always looking towards those that have a sin sickness. That's what, that's what Mark is trying to show us here. That this is how beautiful and big and good this this news of the gospel is that every single time that you see God's grace, every time that you see the gospel, it's always looking towards those that have a sin sickness. It's like a magnet. A magnet only is attracted to its polar opposites, and that's exactly how God's grace works. It's not the people that you and I would think up in our minds. It's not the pious. It's not the people that seem to have their acts together. It's always attracted to those people that have a sin sickness. A deep, overwhelming need that cannot be overcome by anything that they can even fathom or think up about doing before God in order to earn favor before his presence. God's grace and his gospel is always positioned, it's always pivoting towards those people that have a deep, desperate need because of the sin sickness that's going on deep inside of them. It's always searching out those who have a sin problem. We see this not just in this passage, but throughout the rest of the New Testament. So here's just a couple examples. Romans 5, 6 says this, for while we're still helpless, this is the sin sickness that we're talking about. You can't do anything about it. While we're still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly verse 8 but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us first Timothy 1 15 this is Paul a former Pharisee who says this this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them is what Paul says the one that literally is trying to wipe all the earth clean of Christianity. It says, I'm the worst. I, there's an old preacher that I think illustrates it just so well. He says this, the gospel is a hospital for the sick. None but the guilty will ever accept its benefits. It is medicine for the diseased. The healthy and the self-righteous will never relish its saving prescription. Those who imagine that they have some excellence before God will never care to be saved by sovereign grace. The gospel, I say, looks sinnerward. That way and that way only does it cast its blessing. This is why the Pharisees are on the outside looking in. They don't see their need. The tax collectors, it's always before them. And the grace that Jesus extends to them is too good to be true. Moments notice, willing to drop everything in order to follow Jesus because of the promise of forgiveness that he extends. No sacrifice is too great. Jesus reclines with them. He devotes his time to them because they are the ones that Jesus has come for. 
Now, the bladed British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, I think, gives the best application for us as we're kind of winding down here. Here's what he says. The very best thing that you can do in light of all that we've just discussed, since the gospel looks towards sinners, is to get to where the gospel looks. So how do you get yourself to where the gospel looks? There's a couple of things. First one is this, is honesty. Honesty. That you get brutally honest about your sin. This requires us to not only look at our outward actions, but also at our inward intentions. This is where the Pharisees faltered when it came to the outward actions. They could see no flaws. They're the ones that kept all the rules, that kept all the regulations, that kept all the things that you would think a person that would be accepted by God would do, but they don't take into consideration their own hearts. They overlook it. They ignore it. They, they fail to see that they have a love for the attention and praise of other people. They ignore that they have an infatuation with money. They're blind to their own hunger for power and positions of authority. And look, here's the thing that we need to recognize. That we can relate, that we do relate. We're more like the Pharisees than what we would like to even personally admit. We made, maybe we're sitting here, no heinous crimes, no, no heinous sin, sins, no, we haven't broken any major rules. We maintain social norms really well. We're nice to those people that are nice to us. If people are mean, maybe we have patience towards them. But look, here's the thing, all right? Here's the question you need to, if you are wrestling with, okay, is, is this a problem that I'm dealing with? Have I been brutally honest about my sin? Here's the question that you should wrestle with. What would you do if Jesus was hanging with someone that wasn't you if you were at this point in time? What if you were the Pharisees and the scribes that were sitting outside of the house gazing in at who Jesus was sitting with? Would you be the one that's asking the question or would you take a look in the mirror, a long, hard look in the mirror and be brutally honest about your sin? That's the only way that we can really come to grips with, am I in this place? Have I been honest about my sin sickness that is so deep down in my own life and my own soul? But like it doesn't stop there. To get ourselves where the gospel looks also requires humility. That you embrace that you're needy. Your sin sickness is a disease that you cannot solve. You need the aid of a medicine that you cannot afford you need the treatment of a perfect savior. And Levi and his tax collectors, friends, they saw how impossible their situation was, which is why they jump at the immediacy of the moment that they get an invitation to follow Jesus. Their, their situation is so dire, is so needy, they're so aware of it that when that moment comes, man, they jump on it. So look, here's the question for you to wrestle with. Am I dealing with an actual sense of humility in my own life? I, am I being brutally honest, but am I embracing my neediness? Here's the question. Do you believe Jesus is worth dropping everything for? What if that was the invitation that's extended to you? Is all else in your life worth just completely dropping, turning your back on it to follow Jesus? moment's notice. The answer is yes, then look, you have this 
this humility. And here's what I'm trying to say. Don't just like, great, and then move on. You need to embrace this. This is something that never leaves us. Look, we need this clinging to Jesus in the gospel in our life. It's not this one-time decision and we keep going on the way that we were formerly living. What we embrace is like, this is my new life. This Jesus that has come for me, that has done everything for me, like, I have nowhere else to turn. That's how dire my situation is. That's how deep my sin sickness runs. There's no one else I can turn to. But look, if your answer to this is like, ah, I don't know, that's a big question. That's a big ask. Then look, there's more work that needs to go on in opening your eyes to just how desperate your situation really is. We need a humility, this embracing our neediness for something that only Jesus can provide. So look, Jesus has come for those with a sin sickness. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Look, he extends a call to Levi, but it's also an invitation to you and me. Lay it all down. Come, follow me. Put yourself where the gospel looks. Be honest. Be honest about and humbled by your sin. And know that God is a grace for us when we are awakened to our sin sickness. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you're on your own. <laughs> he says, I lay, my, I lay down my life for you. Free invitation. There's nothing that Jesus does that tells Levi, go and clean up your act and then come follow me. And the same invitation is to you and me. Put your worst foot forward and you'll be fully embraced. Let's pray.